Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, while you're turning there, let me um, also just make a mention that as excited as we are to have Karen Shank home, um, she has literally a, a, a new heart and a new kidney, and we're praying for her body to adjust and receive those new organs. Um, we can help them and bless them by bringing some meals to them. There's an online place where you can go to sign up for that. There are some guidelines that the, the, the transplant doctors, you know, have given for, for meals, so if you could just note those, they're, they're in the... Um, the website that you know where you sign up, so you don't have to hunt for those. Just pay attention to them as you're as you're making meals. So thank you for doing that. Hey, before we we open the the passage, uh, it's a familiar one. I think many of you are, have heard uh, Hebrews 12, the first few verses. If you're new to the church, um, th- th- this is a great passage. But before we jump in, I just wanted to ask, how many of you are runners? How, m- how many of you like get out there? Go run? All right, there's a few hands. Good for you all. Taking care of your temple. Good job. Um, actually, I, I, all right, trick question. How many of you are runners? Like, we're, we're all in this race that the Hebrews is talking about. So if you've got your place in Hebrews 12, let's stand, if you're able, uh, for in honor of God's Word and, and, and hear about this race that God is calling all of us to run with endurance. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would get glory in our hearts as we look in faith to you, the author and perfecter of our salvation. Lord, would you help us to run with endurance? In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, If you've been with us over the past couple of months, you know, we've been taking our time through Hebrews 11, this, this hall of faith, All of these witnesses to what it looks like to trust in God's promises, to to live life on this earth, believing and putting our hope, not in this world, but in the world to come, a better country, uh, a city uh, whose architect and builder is God, his new uh, creation that that is going to break through when Jesus returns. This is not our home, that is. And so how do we live Thanksgiving this week, right? How do we live as pilgrims? Uh, how do we give thanks for all the good things we have now, but, but not come under the illusion that this is all there is instead to live like, no, what's real is what's coming. And, and, and this is really just all temporary. So all of these saints who have gone before us, our fathers and our mothers, have been showing us what it looks like to, to run, to be on pilgrimage, to journey by faith. And we want to talk about the great cloud of witnesses, but as, as fantastic as our fathers and mothers have been to, to demonstrate that, there is an even greater witness, and that's Jesus, and that's who, you know, these verses tell us to fix our eyes on. And then, you know, we'll kind of wrap up by thinking about how we are called to be witnesses as well. We, we are to join that great cloud 
so that others who would run after us would see our faith and say, yeah, that's, that's what discipleship looks like. That's what it looks like uh, to follow Jesus. So, so that, that's just your orientation here. Let's talk about the great cloud of witnesses, right? Um, we're surrounded, right, by all of these uh, folks who have witnessed to their hope in Jesus, who by faith are proving that the world is not worthy of them because they're looking forward to a new world a better world. And so therefore, you know, some were conquering kingdoms and doing these incredible feats through God's power working in them and through them all by faith. And we were looking at this last week, how back in chapter 11, verse 32, uh, <laughs> the author, he kind of was like, oh, you know, out of time, skip to the end. What more shall I say? Time would not would, would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They, they, they did all these miracles, stopping the mouths of lions and quenching the power of fire, escaping the edge of the sword. And some were made strong out of weakness. Some became mighty in war. Some put foreign armies to flight. You know, Gideon with his 300 guys, no swords, just a flame, uh, just a torch and a, and a pot, you know, and, and just all these amazing things. And, and, and having these incredible miracles happening through them and, and victory, right? Conquering by faith. But that's not all. So they witness through their faith, what it looks like to put our hope in the promises of God, and, and they got great victory. But there are others who put their hope in God and they suffered, and that some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Uh, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. Uh, some were stoned, some were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword, and they went about in animal skins, afflicted, destitute, mistreated, people of whom the world was not worthy. And they were wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So, so these were all witnesses, you know, those who, who conquered by faith, those who suffered by faith. Those who conquered by faith were witnessing, you know, God's power, promises of God are greater than what this world offers. And, and so, you know, they are testifying to us. That's where we need to put our faith too. The second group who suffered by faith, they're witnesses, but they're in a special category. Um, the word witness in, in Greek is where we get our word martyr from. And so that's the ultimate witness, isn't it? The, the ultimate demonstration of faith is to lay down your life in faith knowing this world is not my home. You can take everything from me. Even something as precious as my life. Because this, is, this isn't where I belong. I belong in God's new world, and, and he's going to bring that to bear when he returns and everything is resurrected, including us. We're imperishable. We're immortal. And so this world is not what our hope is in. It's in the future world. And, and, and so we'll live for that. And if need be, we'll die for that. And that's the ultimate witness. And so this great cloud that surrounds us and shows us what it looks like to live by faith, some, sometimes, hey, it's great. <laughs> Conquering, victory, all that cool stuff. And sometimes it's hard, terribly hard. Both groups are showing us where our, our, our true hope is. And so 
What Hebrews is telling us here in verse 1 in chapter 12 is to let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us be like our, our fathers and our mothers who ran this race, right? Who, who, who ran with endurance the race that is set before us. It's hard to run with endurance. Um, this, this exhortation in verse 1 kind of gives us a clue into the kind of race that we're being called to run. Um, does, doesn't, that, doesn't that tell us about the nature of the race? Who, what runners are told to run with endurance? It's not the sprinters. It's not the 50K you know, um, guys who, who, are, who are being told to run with endurance. Sprinters are told to run like a cheetah is chasing you. you know, that's the advice they get. Who gets told to run with endurance? People like Jenny Kochler who ran the, the Richmond Half Marathon last weekend. People like my wife, who, who ran it virtually, you know, too much on her plate. She didn't make it to Richmond, but she finished, right? Pe- people like the, the, the Newdorf boys and Jed Derrick and, you know, Nate Reed, these, these young men who are running like, like madmen and, and are getting these crazy times, but they're finishing these long races. Why? How? Because... They're, they're not sprinting. They're pacing themselves, and they've got a view toward the goal. The way to finish is to not spend everything at once and to be mindful of, like, what am I carrying? What, what, you know, how much, what's my pace? What's my rate? And, and getting rid of all the stuff that would hinder uh, my race. So imagine, like, um, imagine somebody trying to run a half marathon or a marathon, and you're wearing a soaking wet hoodie and drenched sweatpants, and you're going to, you know, try to run that race. That's not going to go so well. Um, you know, true, true confession, I've actually run a half marathon. I've, I've run two, right? So I've earned the right to put a 13.1 sticker, two 13.1 stickers on the back of my car so that it kind of equals the marathon. Never done a marathon. Um, but if you, you know, you go and, and you can run... The, the Disney races, uh, you, you can go down to Orlando. This is my Run Disney hat that I got for finishing. Uh, and, and we ran in 2018 the, the Disney Half Marathon, and it's, it is, it's a lot of fun, but it's so crazy to watch and see all the other people and what they're wearing. This, this is about all I could muster. Well, I did have a Darth Vader shirt on. That's not true. But it was just a shirt. And I'm, I'm surrounded by all these people, and, and there's women in their Tinkerbell tutus, and there's guys in their Buzz Lightyear costumes. And then there's like, then there's the crazy people. These women who are in full-on, like, huge Ursula outfits with the tentacles and stuff. And they're running a half marathon in that. And then there's the guy dressed like Jabba the Hutt. And he's running a half marathon in that. How do you do that? I don't know. And it's all fun, you know, when you're in Disney and you get to, to run a half marathon. You can dress whatever crazy you want. But... But this, Hebrews is telling us to run unencumbered. Like if you want, if you want to get to the finish line and get your bling, I, I got my 13.1 bling on, woo-woo. If you, if you want this, you've got to finish. And you've got to run unencumbered. And the way that you and I finish this race is to throw off things like sin, throw off things like unbelief, throw off things like unrepentance. Uh, get rid of all that would, would hinder our race and, and so that we can fix our eyes solely on Jesus. What does that look like for us? Like, 
This whole thing of running by faith means by faith, we say this world is not my home. What this world promises me and its counterfeit pleasures and its distortions of God's good gifts, I, I want to take that off and put that aside. And that's just, that's what repentance looks like, is, is we, we have the, the honesty and the integrity to turn from what we know is, is not God's plan, does not please God, in fact, offends God. And we put that aside and we, we take that off. We take off that huge weight, that huge backpack of burden, and we lay that aside so that we can turn and, and run the race that's before us. Or another way to put it, like faith is a two-sided coin. On one side is repentance and turning from something, and by faith, turning to Jesus, who promises us that he forgives us, who promises us that he releases us from shame. You and I can't run this race of Christianity, of discipleship, burdened by guilt and by shame. To know and believe Jesus truly has forgiven our sins. There's things that we've repented of. He's, he has said, you are clean, you are good, you are righteous and beautiful in my sight. And that's what ends up giving us the energy and the endurance to carry on. Otherwise, we're like pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress with that huge weight on our back, and we can't endure. Nobody can. The goal is to finish. The goal is to reach the end and to endure. And, and we need the witnesses who have gone before us to do that, but we, truthfully, even we need an even greater witness. We, we need the one who Hebrews tells us to look to Jesus, the founder uh, and perfecter of our faith. Those are two words that the author of Hebrews has used before. They're, they're kind of buzzwords, so let me just unpack those real quick. Back in chapter 2, um, we were told that Jesus is the founder of our faith. Um, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So what that tells us is that in eternity past, and you can go to Ephesians chapter 1 to read about how you know, we, we were singing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. The Godhead put into effect this plan, the plan of salvation that from eternity past, God would pursue his people, love his people, forgive his people, and laid that foundation and, and that blueprint for how Jesus would accomplish that when he would come. When he would come as a human being just like we are, suffer as a human being just like we do, and make perfect this plan. Complete the plan, right? I mean, that, that's really what we need to hear, what our ears need to, to translate. In Hebrews 11, where, where, we, where we ended last week, chapter 11 ends with God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, those witnesses who went before us should not be made perfect. That, that their perfection, the, the completion of their salvation, would have to wait until Jesus, because he's the perfecter of our faith. And now all of us, you know, on the other side of, of the cross, on, on, the, on the cross's timeline, we can look back and say, that was the perfection of our salvation. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. He, and that's what Hebrews has been arguing through the whole book, that Jesus is better than the angels, and he's better than, 
Aaron and Abraham, and he's better than Moses and Melchizedek, and he's better than the priesthood, and he's better than the sacrifices. He's better than all of these ways that people have tried to approach God, and he perfects the way of salvation. Jesus will perfect our faith. He will perfect anybody's faith. Um, let me put it in, in, in these terms. He will fulfill anyone's faith. He will fulfill anyone's faith system. He will fulfill and perfect any religious structure, any effort that any human being in any time, in any place can ever imagine or devise. Jesus will perfect your access to God. Any desire to approach and touch and, and, and experience the supernatural, Jesus is the perfection of that aspiration. You can't do any better than the superlative. And Jesus is the superlative. If you want to know God, and any, any person in any time and any place who wants to know God, I want to, I want to know God, I want to worship God, I want to meet God, you're not going to do any better than Jesus. He's the perfection of that desire. He, he came and he said, look, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Well, because earlier he had just told the disciples in that same conversation that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you listen to me, you're hearing the Father, right? If you obey me, you're obeying the Father. He is God incarnate. He's God among us. So anybody that wants to know God and worship God, you, you can't do any better than Jesus. He's the perfection of that faith, right? Lots of other religious systems will tell us, um, you know, we're, we're trying. <laughs> we're, we're, we're working toward this goal. We sort of recognize that there's a gap between us and the divine, us and the transcendent. And so archaeologists, anthropologists, um, every person who has any understanding of human cultures, Catholic, right, across time and space, demonstrate that all, all communities have some kind of spirituality. And, and, and in that spirituality, there is a sense of longing, of aspiration, of of a destination. We have to bridge a gap. And that gap can be bridged, and, and there's sort of common denominators, but the two common denominators are sacrifice and obedience. Sacrifice and commandments, right? And so Jesus is the perfection of that, you know, effort to bridge that gap. He comes in, he is the perfect sacrifice. He comes and he's kept the law completely. And he is our sin-bearing substitute. He is our righteous representative. And we can't do any better than him. You just can't. He's the superlatives. He perfects our faith. He perfects anybody's faith. Anybody that comes to him, they're going to have what they want as, uh, as, as we long for our, our reconnection with our creator through Jesus, our redeemer. And the longing for you know, God, to love us, to be gracious to us, you can't do any better than Jesus. He's the Son of God who came to earth to make a way through, through giving of himself on the cross. He made a way for us to become sons and daughters, 
to become the bride, to become the building, to become the priesthood, to become the people of God. Jesus did that through coming among us, and he, perf- he perfects our faith, right? So it's, um, it's not a competition. I, I, I'm, please don't get the impression that I'm, I'm setting Jesus up here beside all of you know, this panoply of other deities or other religious figureheads or whatever saying, hey, Jesus is better than all of them. It's not, it's not a competition. It's a different class altogether because, frankly, no, no other person can finish the race. It's not like Jesus had a better time and, and performed better than all these other figureheads or systems or whatever. They just didn't even finish. They didn't even get to the finish line because they, they don't have what it takes. Only Jesus did. It's a whole different category. And so he perfects our faith, and he's the one to whom we go for endurance, for motivation, for joy, for the ability to carry on through, you know, it's no secret. Life's hard. We, we need this exhortation to endure. We have to pace ourselves, and we need Jesus as the greater, the greatest witness. Where else are we going to go? Really? Where else are we going to go? Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews is telling us at least two things. He endured the crucifixion, right? Without going into all of the gory details, I want you to imagine, you know, thousands of years ago, a bunch of old guys in togas sitting around in Rome going, how can we, uh, how can we put the fear of Rome in every other surrounding nation, and how can we make our citizens comply with our laws? What's, what, what's, the, what's the hardest, most painful, most gruesome death that would that would make everybody fear us and comply with us. Oh, I've got an idea. Let's, let's hang people up on crosses. They said, great idea. Let's go with that. It's the, it's the most horrible form of execution that you can invent. And that's what Rome went with. And that's what Jesus endured. And he despised the shame. Like, okay, apart from the fact that he was naked on that cross, no loincloth like all the art depictions give him. Apart from the physical, you know, human shame of that, we need to reckon with he was, he was dying as our sin-bearing substitute, which meant that God was pouring into him. This was the plan from the foundation, the founder of our salvation. This was the plan. God would pour into his son all of our guilt, all of our shame, and Jesus would absorb it like a sponge. And then it would be wrung out in the grave and would stay in the grave, and Jesus would, would emerge resurrected, victorious over death, over sin, over Satan, over all the enemies of God. And, and that's, what he, that's what he despised as, as he endured the crucifixion. How was he able to, to not just endure the physical torment of the cross, but the emotional and spiritual agony of that shame? What kept him going? How did he endure that? We get, a, I think, a tiny little window. I read a really interesting article. Um, this, the author was a Navy SEAL. A guy named Eric Greitens. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name right. But 
he wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal called The Seal Sensibility. And he was talking about how do guys get through SEAL training? You know, his class was 220 men and women who were signed up to train to be Navy SEALs and only 21 of them graduated. It's a, it's a weeks-long, you know, endurance competition, basically, and it ends with Hell Week. And Hell Week is this last week where these, these, these people get, um, like, I don't know, three to five hours of sleep total. And at any point in Hell Week... If, if you want it out, you could reach for the bell. Ring the bell three times, and they'll gladly take you out of whatever that arduous ordeal that you're going through would be. So Hell Week wraps up, and, um, and, and Eric's talking about how they're on a beach, and they've got this endurance thing in the ocean. And, uh, and, and literally, it's the job of the over... Um, officers who are overseeing and, and trying to find out who's going to make it, who, who is real Navy SEAL quality people here. It's their job to try to tempt people to give up and to tap out. And, they, and Eric's saying, they even, they, they brought the bell to the beach, right? Anybody can ring the bell and get out. And they brought donuts and coffee. <laughs> Anybody want donuts and coffee? You just want to rest? You just want out? You know, here, come ring the bell. And Eric said that he could see people out of the corner of his eye going for the bell. This guy, that guy, this woman, that woman, and he would hear the bell being rung three times, three times. Everybody's going for the bell. The point of the article, the, the seal sensibility, he asks, what kind of man makes it through hell week? That's hard to say. I, I, I do not, I, I do know generally who won't make it, Right? There are a dozen types that fail. There's the weightlifting meatheads. <laughs> there's the, the kids covered in tattoos announcing to the world how tough they are. And then there's the preening leaders who don't want to get their hands dirty. And the, the look at me, you know, former athletes who have always been told that they're stars, but they've never been pushed to the limits of the envelope of their core of their character. And Grayton said that some of the most unlikely candidates did graduate, did become SEALs. The guys who were, who were weak and, and who puked on their runs, the guys who had trouble with pull-ups, the guys who were visibly afraid, sometimes like shaking, you know, because they were, they were so, so frightened. And according to Greitens, almost all the, the people that, that become SEALs share one common quality. He writes, even in great pain, faced with the test of their lives, they had the ability to step outside their own pain, put aside their own fear, and ask, how can I help the guy next to me? And they had a heart large enough to think about others. He said that he would see guys next to him on the beach, and he would see them getting up to go and get the bell, and he would pull them down. Don't do it, because they're thinking about the person beside them, and how they encourage each other. And let me read to you this account from Matthew 27 of Jesus on the cross, right? This is what he's enduring. There are people who are passing by and deriding him, and they're wagging their heads, and they're saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you, if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross, right? And so you might expect some really 
sketchy people to find some kind of morbid delight in taunting a dying man, somebody dying from crucifixion of all things, right? Like, okay. So also, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the religious people, right? The good people mocking him, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers were joining in and reviling him in the same way. So Jesus was getting it from all directions. This voice, this relentless voice. Do it, Jesus. Put an end to your suffering. Ring the bell. Tap out. Save yourself. Vindicate yourself. Show these people who you really are. Demonstrate that you are the Son of God and you have power over them and you have power over the cross and power over death. Do it, right? But he didn't. Why not? First John 3.16. This is the other John 3.16. First John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. For us. He stayed on the cross for us. He stayed on the cross for us. He was thinking about our blessing. He was thinking, as Eric you know, was describing the Hoey, he's thinking about you know, those who need to stay in this fight. He's thinking about how to bless us. He's thinking about how to save us, how to, how to give us the eternal blessing that we would be accepted and forgiven and adopted and loved, that we could have joy. And he had that joy too. That gave him joy to think about our joy. That gave him blessing to think about our blessing, and that's how he was able to endure. And so as we think about our witness, you know, the witnesses who have gone before us, Jesus is the greatest witness, the greater witness, the, the perfection of our salvation. How do you and I have the endurance, and how are you and I going to be able to endure? Verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Look at Jesus. Andre Sue wrote a bunch of um, devotionals and, and meditations for World Magazine, and those were compiled into a book that was published. And she wrote about um, a man in a Russian gulag who had had enough. And uh, he decided he'd carried his last stone from pile A to pile B for his tormentors in this Sisyphean farce. And he laid himself down to await execution by shovel blade. And just then, a fellow prisoner sidled up and without a word, traced the shape of a cross in the dust and walked away. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn then gathered himself together and scooped up another rock, this time knowing why. Considering Jesus and looking to him and, and Peter in 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, don't, don't be surprised 
Don't be surprised that we live in a fallen world and that we're experiencing fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And listen to what Peter says. Instead, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is the, the joy that comes to us and helps us endure trials the same way that joy helped Jesus endure the trials. It's the joy of blessing others. It's the joy of anticipation. It's the joy that sometimes I feel bad when people get surprise parties or, or surprises. You know, wonderful surprises are put on them, but that's great in the moment, but you know what? They've missed out on the, the joy of anticipation. Looking forward to that celebration. Look for, looking forward to that trip or looking forward to, you know, whatever the surprise is. Like when we were singing earlier, you know, um, when, uh, when there is, uh, when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. When, when we sang uh, that verse about until I stand with joy before his throne, like, doesn't that lift you to think and to anticipate that day when he's going to return and make everything sad come untrue? There is that sincere joy of anticipation. And there is the joy of blessing others so that we do not grow weary and that we can endure and finish. So let me wrap up with just a question, and I'm, I want to preface the question. It's not a backdoor blame. It's not a backdoor accusation. It's not meant to make anybody in this room feel guilty or like you're not doing it right or anything like that. It's just a diagnostic question, pure and simple. How many people would describe you as joyful? I hope there's somebody in your life that says, yeah, I, I, I've, I've heard them laugh. They've got a great laugh or whatever. But I mean, like, no, that this is your reputation. <laughs> I'll confess, I'm not sure that that's my reputation. I wish it was. I want more joy. I hope all of us can, can just agree joy is a good thing. We want to aspire for, for more of that. This is sort of a dilemma for us, right? We feel this expectation that we're supposed to be joyful and it should be our response to God's grace for us. But, you know, the sad thing is we, we feel kind of tired, right? We, we feel weary and we don't want to admit it. Uh, we can relate a lot more to, you know, knowing people who have a reputation as maybe the angry Christian or the anxious Christian, or, or we know the busy Christian or, you know, the bossy Christian, or we know, you know, the obsessed Christian and the depressed Christian, but the, the joyful Christians, they seem a little harder to come by. Why is that? Well, Hebrews is, is giving us this encouragement so that we do not grow weary or faint-hearted. What do we do if we already feel weary? What if we do if, if, if joy seems like it's something we've misplaced? I can't find it anymore. It used, I know it was here somewhere, and we're going and we're looking through the drawers, and they're all empty. Where do we find our joy? Well, looking at Jesus, right? Looking at the one who loved us and who who laid down his life for us. All we have to do is endure. Running with, with great joy is not the goal. It's not some kind of victory or some way of earning our salvation. You don't have to put a plastic smile on your face. I'm talking about something deeper, not the superficial stuff. So it's, it's, it, it even seems like maybe it's something that is, is um, I don't know, the bad, bad timing to be talking about joy. When there's 
pain and suffering all around us. I mean, the, the Ukraine and Gaza come to mind, certainly, but there are people who have family members who are sick and struggling. Um, there are marriages that are struggling. There are, there are kids that need help and are going off the rails. And like, is, is joy even appropriate? Well, what Jesus, looking at our, our, the greater witness, what, what that teaches us is that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. Joy and suffering are not binary. They're, they're not opposites. They actually can coexist. Jesus proves that, right? They coexist, and Jesus endured this crossing, and his joy enabled him to endure the suffering. His joy enabled him to endure the shame. His joy in blessing us and caring for us and saving us enabled him to push through that, and we can do the same. He was loving us. He was blessing us. He was bringing joy to us. And then he said to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So right then and there, we know this isn't sort of the world's plastic joy. This is a special joy, Jesus' joy. There are, <laughs> back to running, there are, there are people who, do you know that there's a category of human beings who, who run these races and they love it? It brings them joy to run half marathons and marathons. I was such a baby finishing that, that Disney race, I barely finished. And Kathy put up with me the whole way. God bless her. She's a saint. But there are people who, in, who they get the endorphin rush, and it's just awesome, right? And they, they're, they're dying. Their bodies are saying quit, but they're going, this is so fun. It's just weird. Jesus is calling us to sort of an experience like that. That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He's not saying I'm, I'm, I'm going to just wipe all your tears away in this world. That's coming. That's the joy of anticipation. But even in the midst of tears, even in the midst of your suffering, even in the midst of your shame, there's joy, and we can have that joy too as we start to find our joy in the places Jesus found his joy. Who can I help? Who can I bless? Who can I bring joy to and finding our joy in that kind of happiness? This is what Henry Skugel described in a letter he wrote. He said, if I had my choice of all things that may tend to my present happiness, if I, if I could choose anything that would give me the greatest joy, I would pitch upon this. To have my heart possessed with the greatest kindness and affection toward all men in the world. And I am sure this would make me partake in the happiness of others. Their inward endowments and outward prosperity, everything that did benefit and advantage them would afford me comfort and pleasure. So think of it this way. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What if we were praying also, thy kingdom come. Bring the joy of thy son. Let me get that will done in the hearts of the people around me as God uses me to bless others, to bring joy to others, and to find my joy in that. The joy of anticipation, the joy of blessing those around us, maybe, boy, that, that would be a, a remarkable witness, our witness to the world. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, use us as your witnesses, um, and, and, and use our struggles, and, and use our trials, and use our suffering 
to show people what it looks like to, to press on and to endure by faith, but, but we pray that it wouldn't just be um, just gutting through, but instead that there would be an ingredient of joy. Lord, let us, let us enjoy the anticipation of the day when you do dry our tears. And let us enjoy the, the joy that we can bring others along the way as we serve them, as we care for them, as we protect them, as we bless them, as we, as we love them the way Jesus has loved us. Thank you, Jesus, for, for enduring the cross and scorning at shame for the, the joy of saving us, for the joy of bringing us into your family, for the, the joy of giving us joy. And we praise you for, for your witness to us. In your name we pray.